0: Right. Well, if you would, grab a Bible, and uh, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4. We've been jumping in and out of 1 Corinthians for the last month or so, and, uh, and then next week, just so you know, Andy Wilman is going to start a new series on pandemic life, and that will be really great, so definitely tune back in for that. But for this week, we're going to kind of close out the first section of, the, of Paul's uh, letters to the uh, Corinthians, his first letter. So we've already looked at the first three chapters, and this morning, we're in chapter 4. And as you do that, let me just make a quick confession. I, um, I used to think, once upon a time, I, I thought of myself as a, a patient, kind, gracious, and selfless person. And then I got married. And, and then we had four children. And then the government told us to shelter in place. Me, with those same four children, thank God Carrie was there and is there with me for for what is going on in eternity now and and whatever uh, self-delusions that I used to have of my pious character have been um, utterly shattered. Praise God for that. So let me ask you, have you ever wondered if who you think you are is who you actually are? And would you even want to know? You know, have you, have you ever wondered if, if how other people see you is how you see yourself? Or, or if maybe they see something about you, they know something about you, and they're just holding out on you. And if only you knew, you would be horrified. There's kind of this paranoia with that. Do you ever wonder how other people see you? And wonder, is that how I see myself? And would you even want to know? In 1944, Florence Foster Jenkins performed at Carnegie Hall in what can only be described as a celebration of self-delusion. Madam Jenkins, as she was known, was uh, without question the worst singer to ever perform at Carnegie Hall. Her voice was atrocious. Uh, It was utterly grotesque. She sounded like a cat being strangled, and yet she performed at Carnegie Hall you think, how how is that possible? Well, Madam Jenkins was something of a a socialite in New York at the time. And she was a a bit of a celebrity because she um, was a great supporter of the arts, especially opera. But she was renowned for the fact that she believed somehow, crazily, that she had an amazing voice. She believed that she was an accomplished singer, even though in reality she was terrible. She was a terrible singer. But she didn't know that. Somehow in her own mind, she was beautiful. Her, her, her voice was beautiful, like an angel. And so she would hold um, concerts and she would make recordings and they would sell out, just not for the reasons that she thought. And it culminated in this amazing performance in October of 1944 in Carnegie Hall. And what made all this possible was this incredible combination of people who refused to tell her the truth. Uh, people who would come around and either they were so in on the joke and they didn't want to blow it, they wanted to keep enjoying the joke, or they just felt so bad for her, they didn't want to hurt her feelings. And so they never told her. In fact, one of her friends uh, described it this way after her death. He said, uh, writing years later, he said, the audience, not wanting to hurt her feelings, developed a convention that whenever she came to a particularly excruciating discord where they simply had to laugh, they burst into these salvos of applause and whistles and the noise was so great they could laugh at liberty. Have you ever wondered if who you think you are is who you actually are? And would you even want to know? See, I, I believe that God wants us to know ourselves, our true selves. Not perfectly, not omnisciently, but, but with a, a true and accurate assessment, what, what the Apostle Paul calls sober judgment. That we have a, a true sense of ourselves because, because self-delusion is almost always fueled by pride. An over-inflated sense of ourself. And, and pride itself is, in one sense, is always in its nature delusional. Uh, Pride separates us from each other because pride creates a distortion of reality in my own mind. See, if I don't have a right view of myself, then I will have a distorted view of the world. My my view of the world, of you and of God, will be skewed around this distortion of myself, almost like a light bending around a black hole because of the gravitational pull. That that my image of you and, and my image of God is warped like, like a, a mirror in a carnival house. It's bent around the gravitational pull of my own ego. And that dynamic of, of pride and, and how I see the world versus reality, that, that can never foster and sustain true relationship because it's built on a lie. It's a delusion of my own making. And so pride, because it's, it's delusional in this sense, it always separates us from one another. It always creates a gap and it separates us from God as well. And so when Paul, here in chapter four, he's writing to the Corinthians, he, he's really, what, what we're gonna find is he's going after their, their self-delusion because they have this overinflated sense of themselves, of their own uh, moral and spiritual superiority. They think they're, they're greater than everybody else and they have delusions of grandeur. And out of this pride, they, they are, are looking down on other people and it's creating divisions within the church and these delusions are, are, are splitting the church apart. It's, it's tearing the church apart. And two. As we get to chapter four here this morning, Paul has every intention, as you're going to see, to bursting their balloons. So, verse one, if you'll read along with me. So then, men ought to regard us as servants. He's speaking of himself and the other apostles. If you go back and read in uh, chapters one, two, and three, he's talking about himself and Apollos and Peter and others who are disciples, servants of Christ. He says, men ought to regard us not as um, objects to be compared and competed to create division, but instead, he says, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. He's talking specifically of the gospel, uh, the, the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. Verse two, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And then he's going to go on and explain who he must be faithful to. And this is important. Verses three, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and will expo- expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. See here, Paul gives this this remarkable, really perspective about how he weighs other people's opinions of himself, and even how he, he weighs his own opinion of himself. Because on the one hand, Paul says he, he's wholly unconcerned with what other people think about him. See, the church in Corinth, they were, they were critical of Paul. And we'll talk a little bit more about why later. But, but Paul says, look, no offense. I don't really care what you think about me. It's just not that big of a deal. At which point we, we might think, well, good for you, Paul. You know what? It, you shouldn't care what other people think. It's only your opinion of you that matters. As, as, as Billy Joel saying so many years ago, um, I don't care what you say anymore. It's my life. And so good for you, Paul. Don't worry about what other people think. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you or believes about you. It's only your opinion of you that matters. That's what we might expect. In fact, that's the advice that we often hear. But that's not what Paul says either. Instead, he says he doesn't really care what you think, but he also doesn't doesn't really care what he thinks about himself either. He says, I I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, look, you know what? I I think I'm good. I think I'm doing all right. My my conscience is clear, but I, I could be wrong. Who am I to say? My heart is deceitful. And in the end, he says, I don't have the last word of my life. That's only for God to say. God is the judge. See, there are two dangers that we fall into. Uh, One, on the one hand, is we become, uh, we put far too much stock in what other people think about us. And we become enslaved to their opinions and their judgments and their criticisms, and we dance to whatever tune they're playing. But sometimes out of reaction to that, or maybe just out of our personalities, the other danger that we fall into is we become arrogant and aloof and indifferent, and we just don't take any into consideration anyone else's thoughts or feelings. We don't care what they have to say. We become conceited either on the one hand people become our gods and we worship their opinions or we become our own gods and our opinions are the only ones that matter. See what Paul is is saying here is that there's actually a third way and it's a better way. That he's not on the one hand going to obsess over what anyone else thinks about him, but he's also not going to obsess with what he thinks about him. In fact, he's not really going to give himself that much thought at all because he's leaving it to the Lord at the appointed time, one day he will stand before the Lord and the Lord will tell him. The Lord will say, hey, Paul, this is what you got right. This is what you got wrong. He says, and then God's going to tell me and that'll be fine. But until then, I'm not really going to worry all that much about it. I'm not going to obsess with what you think. I'm not going to obsess with what I think. And instead, I'm just not going to really worry that much about myself at all. It's what C.S. Lewis called the art of self-forgetfulness. See, what Paul's saying here isn't that He's not saying that we shouldn't listen to other people. He's not saying that we shouldn't receive um, loving correction, that we shouldn't give loving correction even. But what he is saying is that when we see ourselves in relation to God first and foremost, his desire for my life, how God sees me in Christ, it removes all this pressure of trying to live up to the expectations of other people, while at the same time it deflates my own ego because I'm not really that worried about me either. See, it's, it's this posture of, of humble confidence before God and how God sees me being loved and accepted because of Jesus. It's this posture that allows me then to, to, to both accept criticism when I receive it, but in a way that doesn't crush me. And even to love those people around me without giving in to their every whim and bowing down to whatever they think, while at the same time, um, not making myself out in some way to be superior and being dismissive out of arrogance. What I find really fascinating about this is that that Paul, he's just not that concerned. He's not that concerned with what you think. He's not that concerned about what he thinks. He's just not that concerned. Paul's not freaking out. Right? He's, not, he's not worried, like, am I good or am I bad? How am I doing here? Paul says, man, I, you know, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. I, I could be wrong. For my personality, that's really hard. I, I'm a type A personality. If I could get a grade from God every day on how I did, that would be perfect. You know, moment by moment, even better. Just tell me, God, do this, do this, do this. Give me a grade and I'm, I'm set. I could totally go for that, but Paul doesn't, But God doesn't do that for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his, uh, his, his masterpiece, Ethics, which he never completed, and if you're familiar with the works, this is a gross oversimplification, so forgive me, but, but his conclusion about the Christian life is, is, is really beautiful. In, in some, he says, look, the Christian life is to love God and love others, and that's it. But, but Bonhoeffer also recognizes that, that that simple equation that sounds so, so beautiful, it comes from Jesus, so we should, we should definitely put some weight into that. Love God and love others. And yet Bonhoeffer says, look, that's fraught with danger because I'm a sinful person and I live in a sinful world. What he realizes is that in loving God and loving others, it's, it's always tainted with Sin. My motives are never pure. I'm in a world that is constantly broken and tainted with sin. And so it's never going to be perfect. But Bonhoeffer doesn't throw his hands up in defeat and say, well, don't even bother trying. Instead, he says, well, that's why there's grace. That's why we live by grace. And so his conclusion is, look, love God, love others, and then trust grace to cover the rest. Have you ever had a, faced a decision that just left you feeling paralyzed? You, you looked at it, and no matter how you tried to deconstruct it, how you tried to unravel it, it was, it was, just, it was unsolvable. Like this, this nut that couldn't be cracked, this riddle that couldn't be unraveled. And it could be good or it could be bad. Like, I don't know which to do. Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know what the right answer is. What's the right thing to do? I am a chronic overthinker and so there have been multiple times in my life where I have faced difficult decisions, admittedly difficult decisions, but I have been almost crippled Emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, because I just kept wrestling with, like, should I do this or should I do this? Which is right? Which is wrong? What should I do? What's the right thing to do? And then, after I'm forced to make a decision, then reliving it over and over again, did I do the right thing? And anything that's gone wrong, judging myself and criticizing myself for that. What's so beautiful about what Paul says here is that he has this this healthy disregard for himself. He just doesn't put that much weight in his own ability to judge his own heart. As far as he knows, he's good, but he's okay with the fact that he doesn't know for sure. He doesn't presume that he's innocent. He just knows he can't know. And so he's faithful, he's obedient, he follows God, and he trusts in grace to cover the rest. Some of you watching this morning, maybe some of you listening, you live with guilt over past mistakes, and you're still reliving them over and over again. And maybe you, you, you also find yourself worried about the, the next decision that's in front of you because you're afraid you might make another mistake. And what will you do then? And I think what Paul would, would say to us this morning is that, that you're putting far too much weight in your own opinion of yourself, you're putting far too much weight, giving yourself far too much credit in your ability to, to parse your own heart, to unravel the mystery of your, your own soul, that it is an abyss at the bottom of which you will never come to, but because of grace, you don't need to. I think Paul would say to us, get on with it. Rest in grace. Don't, don't assume that you're perfect, you're not, but then press on love God, love others, and trust that grace covers all. of This doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a hard look at ourselves sometimes. There's absolutely a time and a place where we should evaluate our own hearts and, and consider why did I do this and my motives? And, and, and when we recognize where we've gone wrong, we should be quick to turn around and quick to confess that. But if we spend all of our lives We can become so bogged down with trying to to unravel the mysteries of our own hearts and and that is never gonna happen. And so we mustn't get bogged down. Instead, we press on and we love God and we love others because God's grace is sufficient. Verse six. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written then you will not take pride in one man over another. I remember reading years and years ago, and uh, thankfully I don't remember where this was or where I saw it, but I I heard of a church that had split because they couldn't agree over whether deacons could have beards. We like to think that we're so much smarter now. We're so much more enlightened, but I'm not so sure. Uh, It was Augustine who, who once said, "...in essentials, unity." In non-essentials, liberty; in all things, charity. See, one of the temptations that the church has faced since God first established it, since Jesus first established this church, is that that we draw battle lines over non-essentials. What my dad always refers to as majoring on the minors. And so, understand that disagreement is not the problem. The problem isn't that we disagree. The problem is when we take every disagreement, and this is so prevalent in society today. We take every disagreement and we turn it into a litmus test for moral superiority. See, the problem isn't that we disagree. I disagree with a lot of people. I disagree with my wife. She disagrees with me. I disagree with Andy Weilman. He disagrees with me. We disagree with people all over the place. The problem is when we take that disagreement and we attribute this this moral weight to it, that, that not only is my opinion correct in the sense that, that maybe it's the correct opinion, but, but in fact, it means that now I, because I hold that opinion, have some moral superiority over you. It, the fact that I hold this position makes me morally better than you. I'm a better person than you. I'm a better Christian than you. And this is what Paul is warning the Corinthians, that they, they have, have puffed themselves up. They they think that they're enlightened. They think that they're superior. They think they're better than everybody else because of how they understand their faith and they have turned their reading of scripture, their theology into a source of pride. And Paul says, what makes you so special? What makes you so special? Verse seven, for who makes you different from anyone else? In other words, who made you who you are? Remind me. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, if you did receive it, excuse me, why do you boast as though you did not? John Chrysostom is an ancient uh, uh, early church father, and in his commentary, he takes Paul essentially to be saying, okay, okay, Corinthians, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's just presume for a moment, suspend disbelief that you really are that great, that you really do get it in a way that nobody else does even then what would be the basis for your boasting? Because what do you have that you didn't receive? I mean, whoever you are, whatever gifts you have, your intelligence, your creativity, all of that, all of that is a gift. You didn't create any of that for yourself. In other words, Paul says, get get over yourselves. If if John Chrysostom is uh, maybe not your, your your blend. Um, I'll I'll quote from another sage of antiquity, Barry Switzer, who said, some people are born on third and go their whole lives thinking they hit a triple. See, one of the myths of our society is is that of the self-made person. I'm just going to trust that you're laughing at my jokes at home. I, I wish I had some sort of feedback here. I think I'm funny. All right, so one of the myths of our society is that of the self-made person we, we we believe that whatever success we have whatever accomplishments we have is, is attributed to ourselves and, and to us solely I mean there were other people kind of but really it was it was us we did it we we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps through our own ingenuity and creativity and hard work and we made ourselves who we are today and this illusion understand is is fueled by pride Right? Because on the one hand, we know that it's just a myth. We know that's not true. We know that other people, God, lots of other circumstances, but, but we, we really want to believe that it's really just us, that we're the ones who did it. We made ourselves who we are. And if you don't believe that, just just consider for a moment, why, why is it, why is it that we worship overwork. Why, why is it that we are so proud of how busy we are? Why, why is it that we? Why is it that we um, attribute a status symbol to our busyness? Why is that? Why is it that even in the course of a pandemic when we're on lockdown, and this isn't for everybody, but for, for so many of us, we found ways to make ourselves busier than ever with endless conference calls and, and endless Zoom meetings, that there is a virtual pandemic of, of online hyperactivity and over-programming for ourselves and for our kids. Why is it? Why do we do that to ourselves? Perhaps is it because we think that it's all on us that we've got to be the ones who do it, that we are the ones who who create our own significance and purpose and meaning. And if we were to slow down, if we were to say no, even once, if we were to miss out on something, that maybe, just maybe, people might realize that we're not as important, we're not as indispensable as we want to believe we are. To which Paul would say, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? Your, your family origin, your genetics, your DNA, the country you were born in that makes all of this possible? Like, what is it? What, what part of that do you get to take credit for exactly? And he says to these arrogant, self-righteous, egotistical, delusional Christians, this church in Corinth, Get over yourselves. Just get over yourselves. And he doesn't say it very politely either. In verse eight, he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us, how I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. You gotta love Paul's sarcasm, right? See, some say that um, uh, sarcasm is the lowest form of humor Paul would beg to differ. Paul finds this extremely effective. I mean, he's, he's essentially mocking them because they think that they are morally and spiritually superior to even Paul. They have arrived. They are kings, at least in their own minds. Paul's not done. Verse nine. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession Like men condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We, you are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. See, Paul, Paul, he says with his voice dripping with sarcasm, how nice it must be for you to be so wise and strong and honored and how, how nice it must be for you to have everything you need while we we apostles, us, us poor apostles, we, we endure hunger and thirst and poverty and manual labor and we're cursed and persecuted and slandered. But good for you, Corinthians. You're already kings. Oh, if only we could be kings with, with you. Good for you, Corinthians. How nice for you that must be. See, the picture that the Corinthian believers had of themselves, okay, so how they viewed themselves was how they believed Paul ought to be. See, in their own minds, they were superior, they're better than everybody else, they're enlightened, they're super spiritual. And they believe that that's how Paul should be as well, because that's what they believed it it meant to be a Christian. That to be a Christian is to be better than everybody else, to be superior, and to look down on others. But what Paul is telling them is how he is. How he is is actually how they ought to be. They've got it backwards. They think that he should be charismatic and superior and, and powerful. And he says, no, 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 you, you've misunderstood. You should be like me. You should be humble and weak and dishonored and foolish for the sake of Christ. And in fact, it's, it's their delusions of grandeur that reveal just how far from God they actually are. I think verse 14 is one of the most unbelievable verses in all of scripture. Paul says, I am not writing this to shame you. Really, Paul? Because you laid it on pretty thick there, buddy. I mean, just a little bit of shame. I mean, that was, that was a lot of sarcasm. That was a lot of marking. But, but he says, no, I, I, I'm not writing this to shame you. He says, but to warn you as my dear children. See, Paul's not writing to shame them. He means it and intends it for their good. that that he sees himself as their spiritual father. He's trying to help them because they just don't get it. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. These believers in Corinth, they had missed the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. For a lot of us, the, the past several weeks um, have just begun to chip away. And some of our delusions that we've been living under for A long time now to remind us that we are not kings. It's been easy for so long to simply be in awe and even take for granted that that as a society we are so remarkable, we are so advanced, we are so sophisticated to believe that we are, we're so self-sufficient and nothing can touch us, certainly not some little disease. We're, We're just too organized, we're too capable, we're too competent, we're too smart. And, and now we're beginning to see just how fragile all of that really was. And I think even within the church, it, it's been easy for us to believe that, that this must be the height, the pinnacle of Christianity. I mean, I mean just look, look at our society right now. I mean, look at, look at all that we have, all the churches that we have, all the human resources that we have within the church and Christian schools and, and Christian colleges and seminaries and all the rest. And we have, we have the Bible translated into so many languages, just in English even. How many translations are there? And we have countless books on theology and historical backgrounds and commentaries and, and Bible studies that we can, we can get online all the time and our pastors all have higher educational degrees and read Greek and Hebrew and somewhere along the line, it becomes so easy to fall for this delusion that knowledge for the sake of knowledge, that we can, because we can be busy with our Bible studies and online resources and all the rest that somehow that equates to following Jesus. But let me just assure you that I am not super spiritual because I can read in the Greek. That's not what it is to follow Jesus. But all of that is being shaken now. All of that is being shaken now. Because suffering is God's way of revealing to us the quality of our faith, of who we really are, of what we really believe, and where our faith really lies. And what he is reminding us of is that we are not kings. But there is a king. There is a king. And he is the one that we should follow. He is the one that Paul, even here, he invites us to imitate. Look at what he says in, in verse 16. Paul says, Imitate me, but in, in verse 17, what does he say we should imitate about him? What is it that, Paul, that Timothy will remind them of? My way of life in Christ Jesus. To imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. I mean, did you hear it earlier? Did, did you hear it when, when, when Paul was describing his life as an apostle in those, those few verses in, his, in that, the midst of his sarcastic rant? Did you hear the echoes of Jesus? Look, look back with me. Look back at verse 9. Tell, tell me, tell me, church, who was it? Verse nine, who was it who God put on display hanging on a cross before the entirety of the universe? One not only condemned, but one who did die for the sake of the world. Who, who was that? And, and who was it? Verse 10, who was it who became foolish in, in the world's eyes so that we could become wise? Who was dishonored so that we could share in his future glory? Tell me, church, who, who was that again? And who was it, verse 11, who was beaten and thirsty and stripped of, of all of even his rags and never had a place to rest his head, who went about wandering from place to place. Who was it, church, verse 11, excuse me, verse 12, who, who carried a wooden cross and, and they put nails through his hands to the top of a hill where he was cursed. When he was cursed, he blessed and who was persecuted, but he endured the weight of all the sins of the world, who was slandered but spoke only with con- kindness. Who was that, church? Who was it, verse 13, who became sin for us, refuse for us, and hung on a cross, mocked, shamed, hated, and murdered so that one day we could rise again to glory that we never deserved? Who was that again? Who was that? I'll tell you, it was, it was our king. It was Jesus. And our king, he is not dead. We celebrated this last week. Our king is alive. He is risen. And even should he lead us through the very valley of the shadow of death, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He, he is the king. He has overcome all. We will endure, right? I don't know whether what's going to happen with this present crisis I don't know where this is headed. I don't know if it's going to be over in a month or if this is just the beginning, but, but listen to me. Our king, he sits on the throne and he has overcome death itself. What is going to stand in his way? A global pandemic? Please. He, not even death could hold him. We will endure. We will persevere. We will overcome. But it's not because we're great. It's not because we're amazing. It's not because of our intelligence. It's not because we're sophisticated. It's because we follow the king The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who sits on the throne, who is alive today, who has overcome all and who is good and who loves us and who has never failed us, not even once, and he never will, not even once, no matter what comes. Church, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this is not a delusion that Jesus Christ died for the sake of sinners and he rose again on the third day and he is seated on the throne at the right hand of God and one day he is gonna return and he's gonna make all things right and that's not a delusion, that's truth. Have you ever wondered if who you think you are is who you are and if you'd even wanna know? Let me tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then you are a child of God and you are loved and accepted, and it's not on the basis of who you think you are or who you've pretended to be your whole life, but who you truly are, because God loves you. He is gracious, and he will carry us through. And if you have never given your life to Jesus, then today is the day. Today is the day. Now is that moment where you come to God and, and quit putting on airs, quit living through the delusions that you are as good as you need to be, that you can do it on your own. Instead, accept the forgiveness that he freely offers to you in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is say thank you. And you can tell Jesus right now that I want to follow you. I want to know you. And he is already there and he's listening. And if you make that decision this morning or if you want have questions, then I hope you'll contact us here at the church. Man, we'd love to have that conversation with you. But listen, I, I, I'm not, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not predicting anything. But we follow a king who sits on the throne, who is Lord of lords, who defeated death, who is coming back to reign and to establish his kingdom, and nothing, nothing, nothing will ever change that. And he will never let us down. I hope you know that this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are good. King Jesus, you are good. Holy Spirit, you are good. You indwell us, you give us power. You are the reason that we endure, that we persevere, that we will not give up hope. You are the reason that we know that one day you will make all things right. And King Jesus, Jesus, we worship you this morning. We, we commit our lives to you. We pray that we would be found faithful in this journey we would be found faithful to follow you no matter what because you have promised to walk alongside us, to carry us, to lead us no matter what. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we would be conspicuous in our love for you. I pray that we would be bold in this time when people are seeking you in new ways. I pray that we would not hide The message of hope that we have but that we would share it with others because we know Lord that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the king to the praise and the glory of God the Father but we want every knee to bow willingly joyfully Lord we pray that your name would be glorified in all of this your name be glorified for our good that we follow you We pray this in your powerful name, amen.